HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Southern food, what does it make you think about? Biscuits, fried chicken, gumbo, so much more. It's always comfort food. We're going to be talking all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Well, Southern Food has us dancing in the studio, and my guests today certainly know enough about it that they can dance to their own music. Natalie Dupree and Cynthia Graubert, who are, between them, they have 15 books, and Natalie, Natalie is the author of over a dozen books herself, and oh, she has appeared in more than 300 television shows, and... Uh, on PBS and the Learning Channel and the Food Network. She's been on television. She's one of the first women after Julia to be on television for over 15 years. She's been on television. She has won so many awards from her for her work and well-deserved, I must say. And she's been a chef and a cooking teacher. And Cynthia, Cynthia Graubert, is a former television producer, and she's an author and a speaker and a cookbook author in her own right, as well as quite a cook in her own right. The two of them put me to shame, I must say. And they are the authors of the newly published, well, it was published within the last few months, Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking. Welcome to both of you. It's wonderful to be here. It's great well, to be here. Well, Natalie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to you first, because having... Has, Many people say the doyen of, of Southern cooking. Uh, yeah, well, you know, and you're quite an authority. Um, whether it's, you know, traditional Southern cooking, new Southern cooking, you've done it. And you were talking the other night at, a, at an event where, talking about your breaking into the business of, of cooking and being a chef at, in you know, this has been the early, early 60s, pre-60. Uh, not any coincidence, not, not 
a slim coincidence that it's the 50th anniversary of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, you were living the life of The Feminine Mystique and breaking in. That's right. And uh, at the time that I wanted, I lived in an international boarding house and I wound up cooking for the group for two weeks when the cook was sick and and loved it, loved it, and told my mother, who was horrified. And um, Women should not be cooks. <laughs> women shouldn't be, ladies shouldn't be ladies, cooks, right. and work at night with men in restaurants. And, uh, and, and she foretold the abuse that's certainly still there. But uh, she said, well, if you can find one woman, um, one lady that has a restaurant that's not slinging hash, um, you know, you can do it. And... Oh, I'd encourage you. And it was the only thing, really, that she ever asked me not to do. Um, and I could not, at that age, find any woman. There were occasional French women or Italian women that had, like, family restaurants. Mm-hmm. Were, but but they, they didn't have anything to do with what I was trying to learn or do. And and I couldn't find a woman. Right, like so many, it. like so many other jobs, mm-hmm. it was a man's world. It was and, a man's yeah, world. Yeah. Well, you did indeed break in, and um, you had met Julia Child uh, early on, and she she encouraged you to to also to break in and to also teach. Right. She was when I when I graduated from the Cordon Bleu uh, or got my advanced certificate that day. She came just to see the. Operation, and they introduced me to her. So I went up to her on the street and said, I had no idea who she was, but they said that she lived, she was an American, clearly. And I, so I asked her what I should do when I got back to the States. And uh, she said, Well, we really need cooking schools. And that appealed to me. And so um, when we returned to the States, I started um, a restaurant in an antique shop out in the country um, and midway between Social Circle and Covington, Georgia, across from the Tri-County Cattle Auction Barn and down the street from the hub, the world's largest rural bus station. And um, so um, we, we started that restaurant in an antique shop. And then someone, I started teaching there. Uh, most chefs, I mean, a lot of chefs now are teaching in their restaurants. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. And um, so so then a department store came to me and asked me to open a cooking school. And so I started the largest, uh, really, I think it really is one of the largest participation cooking schools of that time. And this is in Rich's, it's Rich's, Rich's department store, store, Rich's department which was store. ultimately yeah. a Macy's store. Hmm. Now, it's, now it's called Macy's. Yeah. But, um, but it, it had uh, 18 stoves. Wow. And everyone cooked the same thing so that you'd have 10 chickens or 20 chickens coming out of the oven and, and they would see, oh my goodness, it's the same recipe and it's done 20 different 20 ways. 20 different forms, 20 different yeah, results, right? Yeah, different ovens, different <laughs> different cooks, different turning, how many times? So. Right. Well, and and certainly, I mean, in, there you were in the South teaching cooking, but couldn't help but be Southern cooking, right? Because well, of the I mean, originally and, I was teaching what I knew. I had had a restaurant in Spain, been chef of a restaurant in Majorca. So I was teaching some Spanish, and I was teaching... Um, but I was free- teaching classic, you know, semi-French. 
uh, cooking at the time, what I had learned at the Cordon Bleu, mm-hmm. and, um, and cooking that. That's what I was cooking. But I was also, as I had done in May, as we had at the restaurant in Majorca, growing my own food and um, buying locally, um, just as now it's the fad at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the only choice I had. I was out in the country. I was out in nowhere. And um, the so I grew all my own vegetables and herbs. You know, at the time, you couldn't even get shallots here, or shallots, shallots however you pronounce, however you pronounce it, right. <laughs> um, uh, to plant. I mean, you know, I would wander around trying to figure out where I could find some and just to stick in the ground. Um, and we grew Jerusalem artichokes and fennel, um, which some people call wild fennel, um, and and had a full garden. So it was from the ground up, literally. It right? was from the <laughs> ground up, and I bought uh, sweet breads from the local butcher. He would have thrown them away. Uh-huh. So there were, uh, it was that kind of a restaurant uh, from the get-go, and gradually in its own way, it was Southern and was really the basis for what I called the new Southern cooking movement. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, when you take the fresh ingredients that are around you and use them in classic ways, or when you, um, or when you change the new vegetables to the classic ways, you know, like zucchini in its own way was a new vegetable in 1971 mm-hmm, or two right. and so i would cook it in classic ways and then the reverse yeah. well it, it is and it's interesting because you and this brings me to a discussion for both of you you say that or you have said in the past that southern cooking is the mother cuisine of america tell us a little bit more about that i mean is southern cooking true american cuisine and why would you say well, the first important cookbook um, that was separate from the English cookbooks that had uh, moved into the first American cookbooks was the Virginia Housewife, right. which is one of my very favorite cookbooks. And um, Mary Randolph was uh, Randall was a, um, a wonderful woman. I've just written the introduction to a new edition of that book, and. Uh, she was a fascinating, wonderful woman related to Washington and Jefferson, who fell on hard times and and started one of the first boarding houses that was elite and fashionable. At the time, there weren't, there wasn't anything like that. People stayed with people they knew and so forth, and uh, boarding houses were not the same. And um, and she had a fabulous table. Everyone came because of her wonderful food. And she served things like gazpacho, and ah. uh, and or bread salad laced with fresh tomatoes that drooled into the bread. But we didn't call it panzanella then. <laughs> no, no, it was gazpacho, the early forerunner yeah. of Andalusian American, variety. Right, yeah. right. So, so um, it is the mother cuisine, uh, the slaves and the rice and. Um, most of the many many of the foodstuffs, particularly in the winter, came in through the southern ports. Mm-hmm. So you would have coconuts coming in as ballast and so forth, and they would come into say Charleston or Savannah and go up on the railroad to New York. They were the breadbasket for New York before Florida and California were developed, and um, and so certainly the 
the people that lived there used those foods as well. We were the asparagus capital of the world. <laughs> we were the strawberry capital of the world. Uh, and Cynthia and I did uh, 70-some uh, road trips uh, on uh, southern food, looking at southern food to do little segments on it. And you can tell them about blueberries, Cynthia. Well, uh, blueberries. and But, Cynthia, I wanted to, to throw it to you because you and I had been talking earlier that the southern roots, the southern cooking, really owe the recipes to a large, diverse crowd. We've got everything from the slave trade to Europeans to, you know. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the diversity that of, of the regionality of the southern food. Well, you think about just even trying to define the south. Right. I said biscuits, fried chicken, gumbo. It's so much more than that. It's so much more. And just look at the geography of defining the south. You know, traditionally we say the, the 13 states of the Confederacy were considered the south. Uh, you draw a line at the Mason at the Mason Dixon line uh, and then all the way to Texas uh, but there's not much really about Texas that we consider true southern um, maybe a little bit at the border um, there's Louisiana and the Cajun and Creole cuisine um, we have Appalachia um, the mountain cuisine and just incredible diversity we have three growing seasons in the south so we have so many varieties of vegetables in fact the vegetable chapter in our book is the biggest mm. chapter so you think of biscuits and pie crusts and fried chicken uh but in fact we have an incredible bounty of fresh vegetables you know we have the mountain trout we have the rivers we have the oceans just a, a wonderfully diverse uh, variety of foods that yeah. we can and and Thomas Jefferson the the vegetable thing Thomas Jefferson said that the reason for his long life was that meat was um was should be a condiment huh. not an aliment yeah. and <laughs> and in true southern cooking uh you know before the uh 50s and 60s got a hold of everyone in the country that was eating steaks Every, I mean, meat every day, but before that, it was mostly a vegetarian with some with some a meat in it because everyone had their own garden and people and the didn't poverty, eat. The poverty like that. in the South, you know, repetitive cycles of poverty in the South. Um, you had to grow your own, and uh, and and meat was not as accessible. Um, no, you butcher that hog at the end of the season. That one hog's got to last you a, the right, whole exactly, year. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where everything, but you know, the nose from the nose to the tail, started because that would be thrown into. Yes, that's not a new invention. What a ve- no. <laughs> whatever vegetable you were cooking to give some flavor, but also you know, protein's necessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, you can't go pick cotton if you don't, haven't had some some uh, protein. And everyone picked cotton. My mother-in-law, very elegant woman, picked cotton. When cotton was in season, everyone All hands on deck. All All hands hands on deck. deck. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I I mentioned the word comfort food because southern cooking, southern cuisine is often referred to as comfort food. But another word that is is all over the airwaves, all over the books and and the Internet, certainly in, in the food movement, is real food. 
And Southern food, I think of as real food. And there's this whole real food movement, meaning, okay, what is it? Fresh ingredients. Uh, you know, as you said, you grew the vegetables that weren't adulterated, that was you know, not processed food. Southern well, food. We, we kid ourselves about food and the rules and what rules are in fashion now. And if you eat real food in modest portions, you're going to be so satisfied. It's when we decide to um, restrict ourselves and, uh, and, and go on crazy diets and, you know, eat only certain things. That's, that's, when, that's when we become so dissatisfied. We can't really answer that hunger. Mm-hmm. And eating real food is what can satisfy you and you'll eat less and then and it'll be a healthy diet i think by real food we mean food that you either grow or that someone near you grows or that you put up right you know uh the only canned things i buy and i and I, uh, I say canned loosely because now so many of them come in cartons are are tomatoes Italian tomatoes mm-hmm. and and stock. I make a lot of my own stock, but if I'm in a hurry for uh, a soup, I'll I'll use that stock. But I don't buy anything else from the freezer uh, or from the uh, pre prepared. Right, and that. Really, real well. I have to confess, about once a month, the rotisserie chicken. But, uh, <laughs> but other than that, I just don't buy those things, and that keeps it real. Indeed, indeed. I, I want to um, ask you both what your what your thought is on what makes or what is the essence of southern cuisine or southern food is there if there's one thing that you could pinpoint what is the essence of southern flavor i'll i'll have to i'll have to agree i mean that comes back to the satisfaction you know if you have something that has great flavor it's just so satisfying uh a a tender biscuit I knew you were going to say biscuit. I, I knew I that just, was going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, there's just nothing better than, than a tender biscuit. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Leave me on that note as we go to a break. I'm hungry. <laughs> we'll be right back talking more about Southern cuisine. This song is called Pumpkin Pie by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. 
For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. We are back on A Taste of the Past talking with Natalie Dupree and Cynthia Graubert about Southern cooking and their new book, Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking. Uh, let's talk about the book a little bit. Master- now, that's a kind of a, a leap they're taking that title, Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking. I mean, hmm, <laughs> we know somebody who did a book on Mastering the Art of. What were your thoughts on that when you chose that title? Well... It was about techniques as much as anything. Techniques and flavor. Those were the two things that we were trying to teach. So not co-opting Julia Child's no, title. Not, it was, in fact, a, a, yeah, a reason. There, certainly, I liked her title because it explained the importance of learning to master something. And we're great ones for saying that you can't make something the first time mm. perfectly. You know, I saw those 20 chickens when I was <laughs> had a cooking school between everyone different. And I learned that you can't know, you can give the same recipe to 20 people and some will have a natural ability to cook that. And others will have to cook it two or three times. I always say it takes seven chickens to learn how to cut up a chicken, mm. and and both when it's cooked and when it's not cooked, and and people are afraid to cook a whole chicken sometimes because they don't know how to cut it up, um, and and it's so so part of what we do is just teach people how to cut up a chicken, but you're not going to get it the first time perfectly, and to tell you the truth, when you buy a, a chicken cut up already from the grocery store, the chances are that the um, the person that cut up the chicken left a lot of chicken breast on the bone. Yeah. You just see it, but you don't see what was on the bone that they have. That's right. Uh, but, but it... You know, they just use a big knife and cut it off, just like filleting a fish. They just go swoosh, and there's a lot of meat left. Yeah, in well, I mean, that and so many other things in the book, cutting the, cutting up the chicken. I mean, this book is, well, first of all, folks, if you haven't seen it, it's no small book. You've got over 700 <laughs> recipes in this book, and it's a heavy book. It's a wonderful book. And, um, Cynthia, you and I were talking um, earlier about I what I liked about the book so much is that I feel it's bound to be a classic because it's it's a book that a beginner can really learn to cook from. It it really gives a lot of detailed instruction. It was part of our mission with this book to uh, while we include a lot of history and uh, some historical recipes and and a, a terrific bibliography, if I do say so myself. Uh, <laughs> we 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 want wanted to reach. New cooks, mm-hmm. um, you know, new cooks are at such a disadvantage now. They typically haven't grown up in the kitchen with someone teaching them how to cook, and so they're reading recipes for the first time. And something that you and I are both familiar with, they're watching a lot of cooking shows on television. Uh, what an incredible disservice! <laughs> 
uh, Go we're, ahead. we're doing to these new cooks that are that that are are watching these shows on television and uh, watching people use a diverse basket of ingredients to make something incredibly creative and and the viewer runs out to the store spends a fortune of money on ingredients comes home and tries to duplicate that and there's it's impossible and these chefs working with techniques they've learned for years you know and practice for years and 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 it's not uh you know they're not learning the this the sequence of of things and 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 the techniques so so we really took our time with the language of the recipes in this book and what we hope that the reader will sense when they're reading the recipes is that natalie and i are right there with them and we we wrote the language of the recipes so that that they know really where they are in the recipe. What is the the dish supposed to look like at that stage? What what does it smell like? What what are the cues that they need to be aware of right. as something is done? Now, my grandmother's. I, I'm fortunate to have a few recipes in my grandmother's hand. Every single one of them ends cook till done <laughs> right uh we, we did not do that to right. our reader we 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 do give them the cues for what done means <laughs> that's good well what i also like there i mean the head notes as you say and the, the explanations judith jones i'm sure is has approved it because she's a, a great proponent of including all those head notes and and so many recipes these days are bullet points that you know you don't know what to do with it you know there you have a list of ingredients and bullet points and what do you do Right, and and people don't even know really what sauté means. Like, it really means sort of jump in the pan. Yeah. Like, just get it in and shake it around or stir it around. Um, we don't expect our readers to be able to shake a pan or to flip the food in it. We 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 like them to use a wooden spoon and and uh, and learn how the food looks as they as they turn it. Uh, and we don't expect them to be magic choppers like on television. Right. Um, we just want them to have enough dominion over their food that they can produce something that that is satisfying to them. If you can't feed, food is a control issue. It's the most powerful control issue there is. Whoever controls your food, whether it's a dictator in in uh, a, a foreign land that's starving the people and or pocketing the money or whatever they do there, or whether it's a, a domineering parent, uh, or my father insisted on having his food at a certain time every mm-hmm. night. So who controls the food, controls the family, controls the nation? And so everyone needs to learn, everyone in a family needs to learn to cook so that they have dominion over their own body. All right, all right, and and and, and you really are giving people the tools to to take right. control to right. do this. You know, before we um, before we we run out of time, I what I wanted to do, Natalie, is talk to you a little bit, and Cynthia chime in too because you're right there with her on so many books. Um. I want to talk to you a little bit about the process of writing books. Today, you know, if you have a platform, if you've had a television show, if you've, um, you know, have a blog or a Twitter follower following of 200,000, I mean, you can, yeah, you can get a a, a project going, um, you know, and, and a proposal for a book and get a nice advance. But 
generally these advances that come from publishers aren't all that great, and people don't realize what they are necessary for. Can you talk a little bit about that for me? <laughs> we just had this discussion in in the car on the way over. Uh, the advance... Um, Number one, advances aren't what they used to be. That has publishing has just changed. You know, no, no one's getting gigantic advances anymore. Um, if they are, call me and tell, <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell me how name, to right. get that done. <laughs> uh, but um, so you you're you have an advance, and uh, you have recipes to write and to test, and our recipes are are tested at least three times. Most of them, many more times than that. Uh, that's a lot of groceries. That's a lot of grocery money you go through. Um, and not to mention assistants who are going to test those. Right? And it, Natalie, who has mentored so many people in the field, uh, Ed is has the most wonderful assistants. Um, and then, and then some of that money may need to go for the food for the photography for the book and it, it, it goes to it, it goes pretty fast yeah, uh, yeah. well and it, so and many time you know and time yeah, yeah time much is money. less the time that's mm. right that's right and natalie um cynthia said you you have wonderful assistants and you have a little pet name for them your chickens you call, call them your chickens, chickens. <laughs> <laughs> you and chickens i don't know right 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 <laughs> i know but but aside from yes having wonderful assistants they they're wonderful they're loyal because I have to say you are extremely good to your assistants, and you give credit where credit is due. I like to give credit where credit is due. It only enhances um, the me because then people understand that I, that there are thoughtful, intelligent people doing these recipes as well. I've never understood people who didn't credit their assistants. Uh, I, I've been so fortunate in, in who I've had as interns. I try to get an intern from a culinary school. Mm-hmm. People come out of culinary school having only done every recipe once. Hmm. And they don't know what they don't know. And I think what happens when they come to work with for me is that they find out that they don't know what they don't know. Well, and also we learn so much from them. Oh my goodness! I mean, we we help. We learn so much from them. My son is a literalist, and he actually te- was in the kitchen testing one of the recipes, and it was biscuits. and And uh, Natalie saw that he left the scraps at his work area, and uh, she said, "You know, why, why did you leave the scraps?" And he said, "Well, the recipe said it made twelve biscuits." <laughs> But you, you know, see, you could have had two yeah. more biscuits. Yeah, it's the yeah. kind of thing that we learn from the assistants when they're reading the recipes. It helps us be extra clear. Right, exactly. And I'm sure you garnered a few recipes along the way from assistants as well. Oh right? yes. Oh, they're oh, very we creative, and yeah, mm. yeah. Mm, we really enjoy the recipes they bring to us because they're fresh and they're new. Uh, young people, of course, keep you young, uh-huh. and and. Uh, they're they're smarter than we are in some ways, and but we have things to teach them too. <laughs> and what's in store next? Well, we um, we're talking about doing a dessert, a southern dessert book, kind of an offshoot of mastering. Um, oh, that, and, and my and my next book comes out in August. Oh. Uh, slow cooking for two. 
Oh, terrific. Oh, that'll be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. which is really a wonderful thing for her. Yeah. She's devised some things in this book that uh, that are very exceptional, I think, for ways to cook for two in a crock pot. Well, I look forward to that, and I look forward to to going back to the book, Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking, and cooking more of those recipes. I have to say, everything that I've cooked from it and eaten that other people have cooked from the book have all been absolutely delicious. And Natalie, it's always a pleasure. And Cynthia, it has been, and it has been a super pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you both for joining me, and thank you for listening. This has been Linda Palaccio, your host on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.